Good morning, beloved. Uh, it's time for us to give our attention to God's Word as we pick up our series that we've been calling Embodied. We've been in this series attempting to sketch a basic theology of embodiment. We've been doing that in part because um, this is a neglected area of theology, particularly among Protestants. Uh, and we've been doing that because we're in the midst of this pandemic, which in many ways forces us to be more familiar with our bodies uh, and gives us an opportunity to be more fully uh, human, embodied, as it were, embracing who and what God has made us to be. In our first four sermons or so, we were thinking about embodiment as it applies to our individual bodies and how we relate to them and how we relate to God through them. But to be embodied is also a social reality, not just a private, personal, individual reality. And so what we want to do in the next couple of sermons is, is turn then to this social aspect of embodiment and think about what it means to be people who inhabit these frames in relationship to uh, other people and other things. And to do that, we want to go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I want to read for us um, four verses or so from those two chapters. And then I want to give us the, the sort of four facts in those chapters that teach us that our embodied lives are meant to be social lives. So look with me in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that comes on the earth. And jumping down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So I want to give us four facts from these four verses that imply that the body is made for community. Fact number one is that we are made in God's image. We see that in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's a pretty well-known verse, but there are at least three words in there that need to be clarified. The first word is the word man, the Hebrew word Adam. Here, man does not refer to male. Um, man refers to humanity in general. So what's said here is said of all of humanity, male and female. All of us are made in God's image after God's likeness. Every individual person you meet carries the image and likeness of God. The second word to clarify is the, the phrases us and our, the words us and our. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Uh, who do those plural pronouns refer to? Well, theologians have offered different proposals over the centuries. Some have said it refers to God and the angels. But, but nowhere in the Bible are angels said to be participants in creating uh, the universe or creating man. Some folks have said this is the, 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 the sort of plural of majesty, 
that kings and queens sometimes refer to themselves in this um, third person plural, first person plural, we or our, as a, a, a designation of fullness and reign. But that's an odd concept to sort of import back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where frankly, there are no kings and queens uh, on the scene. The other proposal is that the, the us here refers to the persons in the Trinity. And, and while certainly Genesis chapter 1 and 2 doesn't give us a full doctrine of the Trinity, in the whole canon of Scripture, uh, it becomes clear that God is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have communion with each other uh, inside of the Godhead. So here, I think us and our refers to God and the persons of the Trinity, and we are made in the image and likeness of a God who himself exists in a community of persons. So to be in the image of God as embodied people is, is in part to be made for community, to make to show forth that image, that likeness of God. And then that's the third term we want to clarify is the term image and likeness. Those are not two different things. They're synonyms. And uh, to be an image of something is to be a, a representative of something. The, the image reveals something about the thing imaged. God designed humanity to be a dynamic, moving, complex representation of what he is like. And what he is like in part in community. So one theologian puts it this way. Humanity above everything else expresses God and represents God. We are living proof that God exists. I like that. You and your embodied self are made in the image and likeness of God. And you are living proof that God exists. We're also proof that God, as I said before, uh, it exists within a community in himself, that God is social and therefore we are social. The, the persons of the Trinity are not alone, they are together. In fact, Genesis 1.26, for the first time, depicts God as kind of consulting with himself. In the first um, five days of creation, when he created things, he just said, let there be. But now here in verse 26, he, he says, let us, they consult together. Not merely command. And then in verse 28, notice, God speaks to humanity. The text says there, God said to them. These are indications that to be in God's image is to be in community. To be in communion with other people. And what enables that communion is the physical body. And these bodies are carriers of persons into society for the enjoyment of that fellowship, just as the Trinity enjoys fellowship in itself. So that's the first clue. We are made in God's image. Here's the second clue, that our embodied lives are meant to be social lives. We're called to have dominion. You see that there in verses 26 and 28, where God says that uh, let them have dominion over sort of all the categories of creation, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, every creepy thing that creeps on the ground, uh, and so on. Dominion means rule. Human beings are to rule creation as caretakers and stewards. So through our use of creation, we're meant to make creation better. 
We are meant to cause the physical world of plants and animals to, to flourish by our caretaking. So you could say that we exist in society with the created order. Another, again, to quote another theologian, Derek Kidner, he writes, in both the opening chapters of Genesis, man is portrayed as in nature and over it, continuous with it and discontinuous. He shares the sixth day with other creatures, is made of dust as they are, feeds as they feed, and reproduces with a blessing similar to theirs. So he can well be studied partly through the study of them, the creation. They are half his context. So to think of our bodies in social relationship, we must think of our bodies in relationship to our environment and how our bodies interact with the environment. Because God has called us into creation care, and that call into dominion is fulfilled, uh, notice this now, by humanity collectively. The task is too large for one person or even one couple. It's a mission that requires all of humanity, all human beings, and belongs to all human beings as a result of being in the image of God. So what we have here in Genesis 1.26 is a human society being formed to care for the broader society of the entire creation. And our stewardship of the creation cannot happen without embodiment. Our embodiment, notice now, would not be enough for our stewardship if we are not in community with other bodies. The task requires bodies. The bodies require others. It's a tip in verses 26 to 28 that to be embodied uh, fully means to be in community together. And number three, third tip, that to be embodied means that we would be social beings. So that we are created with genders. We're created with genders. So we see in verse 27, the Bible says there, So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the text now goes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 25, to sort of, prose and a more static and quick description of God's creation. It moves from that now to a little bit of poetry. We've got a structure in verse 27 that emphasizes the, the image of God again. And then the last line in that verse um, clarifies what's meant here in part by uh, man being made in God's image. That is, male and female, he created them. So that reference to male and female brings us to the topic of human sexuality. Humanity exists by God's design in two sexes or genders, male and female. In the record of creation, it's also interesting, this is the first time in the Bible uh, where gender is mentioned. One writer says this, it was not considered necessary to mention gender in the case of the other living creatures. But it is an important element in reference to human beings. Why is male and female an important element in reference to human beings, but not the rest of the creation? Well, with animals, 
God merely commands that they multiply, and they do, almost out of instinct. There's not much more meaning to um, the physical relationship between animals than, than procreation. But notice now, with humanity, the emphasis falls on identity, not just the mere act of, of lying together and procreating. Human beings are male and female. Gender or sex becomes an essential part of who we are and how we understand ourselves as embodied beings made now in these two genders for, for embodiment together as a community. So again, to quote one writer, it says, being human beings, uh, being human means being a sexual person. Human sexuality and sexual bond between husband and wife are deemed very good, in verse 31, by God, and are to be honored as a divine ordinance for men and women. So part of what it means to be human and to be embodied is to be engendered. That's God's design. That's his unchanging design. That's his divine ordinance for all of time. Now, gender gets expressed socially. Male and female, he created, notice, them, plural. The two genders go together. They complete one another and form a society. So we must learn to think of male and female as social realities rooted in biology because the, the very good of human sex or gender is literally written on the body. The body becomes the first sight for the social expression of male and female, of gender identity. Now, I'm using sex and gender, those words, as loose synonyms. I realize that many people would like to sort of break those apart in order to distinguish two things. They would use the word sex to refer to our physical bodies and, and their anatomy. And they would use the word gender to refer to the sort of social roles and ideas that uh, societies developed um, for men and women. And I think that's, that can be a useful distinction, that sex and gender are not completely overlapping terms, and I understand, therefore, the, the appeal of that approach. But I'm going to use them as rough equivalents, because I think if you put too wide a distinction between biological sex and what, what folks would call socially constructed gender, then you can actually start to justify disordered relationships with our bodies, as we've talked about before. And, and I don't want to risk that. So, for our purposes, we, we simply want to acknowledge five basic facts about sex and gender according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Number one, God created all people in his image and likeness. There are no human beings who are not image bearers of God. We all are in God's likeness. Number two, God created only two genders, or sexes, male and female. And this means then that everything else, uh, as a consequence of sin and a fall in a broken world, is a disordered relationship to our bodies. Number three, both sexes individually, male and female, individually or separately, image and show forth the likeness of God. But number four, both sexes together also more fully image and show the likeness of God. And 
fifth fact, each gender is meant to add to the other gender what is missing in the other gender and therefore completes God's design for humanity collectively. I'm not here talking about marriage yet. I'm talking generally about male and female in society, that our biological genders or sexes are meant to uh, complement one another, to add to one another in a way that completes the other. Now, when we consider these five things, it becomes clear that, that sex or gender is not an afterthought in the mind of God. And therefore, it's not an idea that we can sort of play around with without impacting God's original design. Gender, or sex, is inscribed on the body. It's written on the body. It is part of God's design. Now, some people may feel trapped in the quote-unquote wrong body. They feel their emotional or their psychological identity is male, but they are in a female body, or, or vice versa. They feel psychologically and emotionally female, but they are in a male body. That's called gender dysphoria. It's something to, for the church to discuss sensitively and prayerfully and carefully because it touches on the, the social reality and meaning of the body and the soul. And we can't get into it at great length here, uh, but, but let me make an observation uh, about gender dysphoria, just from the text of Genesis 1, 27. Here's the observation. We'll make an observation and a recommendation. Here's the observation. Feeling trapped in the wrong body is itself an admission that gender and body go together. Even the person experiencing gender dysphoria is affirming the importance of the body, even though they feel mismatched with their bodies. The connection between our bodies and who we are is real. And so in a Christian theology of the body and a Christian response to people feeling gender dysphoria, um, the, the aim is not to downplay the importance of the body, but to affirm it and to recognize it. And here's where I want to come to the recommendation. The question becomes, then, should feelings or the body determine the direction a person takes in resolving their mismatch, their perceived mismatch? Which should come first? Which should be determined, the, the, the feelings or the body? I want to suggest from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, gender, socially constructed, should follow the body or the sex of the person. But biology determines psychology. Years ago, you couldn't run PC programs on a Mac. And you couldn't run Mac programs on a PC. The hardware determined which software would work on it. Please forgive me for using uh, inanimate things as an illustration for um, very sensitive and personal topic, but, but I think it illustrates the path forward in resolving some of the gender confusion that exists in the world. The path forward is not things like sex change operations. The path forward is to get the software of emotion and psychology to fit the hardware of the body. The effects of the fall are more likely exhibited in how we think and feel about ourselves than it is exhibited in God's design of the body. 
So as Matthew Lee Anderson puts it, um, the central issue seems to be whether the body establishes limits on how our sexuality takes shape in the world. Can we receive our bodies as created gifts that are loved by God rather than reshaping them according to our psychological state? It's very true that such a position may make some people feel as though their bodies are damaged goods upon delivery. But it is the Lord's pleasure to make damaged goods his temple, a temple that he himself destroyed only to raise it again. I think what Anderson is arguing here, and I certainly would agree, is that the body is a gift from God. That design is not an error. And so receiving that gift from God should then drive us to, to sort of shape our, our identities and what we, what we sort of think of as, as gender and our understandings of our, our emotions and our feelings and our psychological state in ways that fit with the gift from God, in ways that fit with the body. But we are created as gendered beings. And that's a clue that we're meant to be related to each other, male and female, in social relationships. Let's move us to a fourth observation. The final clue for understanding that the embodied life is meant to be a social life comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. There the Bible says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is the first time that not good is used in the Bible. It's the first time not good has been said of anything in God's original creation. Not good, notice, that's not Adam's complaint or opinion. It is God's complaint or assessment. God looks at man and he says, it's not good for this rascal to be alone. One commentator explains why. Until the woman is formed, God cannot pronounce the creation of humans as good. The work is incomplete. As we saw in chapter 1, God only regards his work as good when it is properly finished. And Genesis 2 is a detailed record of God properly finishing his creation work by creating woman on the sixth day. And woman's creation solves the universe's very first problem, man being alone. Adam was without, notice verse 20, a helper suitable for him. In other words, Adam was incompetent alone for completing God's call on his life, to have dominion over creation Without a helper, also fully in the image of God, fully his equal, and fully able to complete him, unlike any other creature, Adam couldn't be and do what God had called him to be and do. So God fixed the problem by creating a woman. God solves the problem by making woman, woman a helper suitable for Adam in verse 20. Now that may hit some people's ears funny. The word helper sort of carries the idea of, of insignificance in today's society. The word helper sounds like a, a menial task in today's English. 
we, we have to understand that the, the connotations and meanings of words change over time and culture. But, but in the Bible, the word helper is not a derogatory term or an insulting term at all. In fact, the word helper, Ezer, is often used of God in the Old Testament. God is the helper to his people, Israel. Right? We would never think of God as being menial or low or small or insignificant. So when the Bible uses the same word that it uses of God, of the creation of woman in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible is not belittling women in the least. The Bible is dignifying women. But as I said, language change, connotations change, and so perhaps it's useful to, to sort of use another synonym for the word helper. And I like what Amy Bird proposes in her book, No Little Women. I commend that book to you. It's an excellent meditation on women and uh, service in the church and the world and the home. She uses the term necessary ally. She uses the word ally to sort of capture the idea of helper in the original sense. And here's, here's what she says, quoting one theologian. She says, what sort of ally is the woman to the man? She is a necessary ally. The sort without which he cannot fulfill humanity's mission. Certainly woman as a necessary ally fits for the mission of family building. However, necessary ally brings into view the joint mission for which the male and female are created to rule God's earthly kingdom. I like this because if we view women as necessary allies and not merely helpers in the worldly sense, then our view of women changes wonderfully. We no longer squeeze them solely into the roles of wife and mother, if ever they're blessed to marry and have children. We also expand the role of, uh, to be co-regents or co-rulers over all of creation, to have dominion, as the Bible says. When, when women are viewed as necessary allies, we, we come to understand that we cannot merely tolerate women. We must joyfully include them and indeed unleash them to fulfill the creation mandate of Genesis 1 and 2. I like the way Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher in their new book, Worthy, sort of capture or try to capture this idea of properly valuing women. Anyway, this means that we must include women. We must involve women in ruling the earth, God said, and let them rule. Man and woman are designed to rule together. Exclusion of women is the opposite of God's design. To exclude women is to exclude half of God's creation, creation means of ruling the earth. This means that we must include and celebrate the influence and presence of women in all realms of life. Women should be sought after and encouraged, educated and equipped, taught, learned with and learned from, celebrated and needed as essential partners in the shared task. I think that's a fair summary and implication of the society and the social relationships God had in mind in Genesis 1 and 2. These embodied women, these embodied beings called women, are vital to their male counterparts and to the proper oversight of creation. When we exclude women, listen, when we exclude women, 
we go back to the not good of Genesis 2.18. When we exclude women, we make war against women. And in fact, war against God who created women to solve the fundamental problem of it being not good for man to be alone. Women are vital and necessary as compliments to men in doing what God has created humanity to do. So I have a proposal for us. Let's end the gender wars. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone say it, but it it needs to be said and said over and over again. The so-called battle of the sexes, the use of old language of the 60s and 70s, well, it's anti-God and anti-human, that very battle. The underlying sexism and oppression of women that led to the battle of the sexes is anti-God and anti-human. And the Christian equivalent to the battle of the sexes. Sometimes worldly expressions of egalitarianism on the one hand and complementarianism on the other hand and the constant bickering and fighting and wrestling over control and power is anti-God and anti-human. If we're going to be the kind of human beings God designed in Genesis chapter 1, then we cannot support anything less than the full flourishing of men and women as men and women. We cannot for a second think that the flourishing of one gender is the business of that gender alone. We must understand that the other gender is necessary to our existence and our effectiveness as showing God's image in the world. So every woman ought to be, in the most biblical sense of the word, a supporter of flourishing masculinity. But because of the history of gender oppression, it's more important that every man be, in the most biblical sense of the words, a feminist or a womanist, if you will. This is to say, every man should be on the front lines of guaranteeing that women being made in God's image and likeness are treated as fully equal to men and treated as fully necessary to society. Women should never have to fight us for equality, brothers. They should find us defending and promoting it. And equality should not be an abstract concept. It should be the concrete experience that we foster in our social settings. And not just men, but every church ought to be a community where men as men and women as women find nourishment encouragement and support to live their fully embodied lives and their fully engendered lives in service to God. If women are not thriving in our church, then we have not understood how absolutely vital women are to us as men and to God's design for society. In fact, if women are not thriving in our church, we've not understood our incredible limitation as men or the unique ways womanhood itself is necessary to imaging God. If women do not seem absolutely vital to us, rather than nice to have around, then we're not yet biblical Christians. We've not yet understood that we were created 
embodied gendered beings for social relationship and gospel partnership. So let us get a good glimpse of the embodied relational world of Genesis 1 and 2. We can summarize this way. We exist in these bodies to relate to God as his image bearers, to relate to the creation as its rulers, to relate together as male and female as gendered equals, and to relate as man and woman in partners in mission. We live in a world that distorts all of this. Sinful man turns from God and and makes gods out of the creatures, according to Romans 1. We exploit and destroy the creation rather than acknowledge it as the essential context for our lives and bodies. We oppress women as inferiors. We sometimes choose choose sinful independence and isolation and and self-reliance rather than partner across genders to fulfill God's call on humanity. Without Jesus, we would be utterly lost. This is where the gospel breaks in as really wonderful news. Think about what Jesus does. He comes to renew us in the image and the likeness of God in true righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, according to Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. The image we distorted in sin, Jesus renews in righteousness. And not only that, he redeems the entire creation itself, according to Romans chapter 8. He renews the world that we have ruined by sin, and we exploit in greed and indifference. He's going to make all things new. And not only that, Jesus takes men and women driven by sin into conflict and oppression, And he creates in the church a new society where equality is restored. So much so that Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ there's no longer male nor female. Now, Paul doesn't mean that biology no longer exists and that gender no longer exists. It does. He doesn't mean that there are no distinctions in roles between men and women. There are. What what he means is, is that in the church, because of Christ's finished work, the sinful attitudes of superiority and inferiority are done away with. Equality is restored. And think about Jesus and his great commission. How Jesus sends on mission both men and women to subdue the world of sinful man in the proclamation of the gospel and the making of disciples. The Lord Jesus does all of that in our body. And he does all of that through our bodies. As he hangs on that tree, suffering in our place, the wrath of God. And when he is raised from the grave in glory and victory and vindication by the power of God, he is then in himself restoring what has been lost from Genesis 1 and 2. 
He is restoring for those who believe in Christ. He's restoring them to the image and the likeness of God. He is restoring the proper relationships between men and women in the church, in his body. He is in time going to restore or renew the creation itself. And the Garden of Eden will give way to the new Jerusalem. And all that we were meant to be and have lost will be returned and glorified. And we'll really live the embodied lives together that we were meant to live. This is the gospel hope. And this is what Jesus offers to the world, to all who would repent of their sin and trust in him. He will make you a new creation. And we will be the embodied beings in his society, in his family, in his church that we were meant to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his being the perfect human being. We thank you for his giving himself to make us what we ought to be. To save us from your wrath and to reconcile us to you and to renew us in your image and your likeness. And we pray that you would do that even today with someone watching, having heard your word today. We pray that you would do that across the world as you send your gospel forward. And we ask, the Lord, that you would make us a church that understands that to be embodied is to be in social relationship with others. And that all that you meant for men and women as your image bearers in dominion over the world, engendered and partnered together as equals, that all of that would come to pass in fuller measure as we flourish in your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.